Now, in terms of ministers and how they are taught by the churches to lead, churches reward ministers who enforce the peace and don't trouble the waters. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. We've got a very special guest with us, Reverend Jay Call, who is the general editor of a brand new book published by Nurturing Faith Publishing, an imprint of Good Faith Media, True Colors, Stories Behind Baptist Inclusion. And we've got Jake here with us. And then later on in the pod, we sat down not only with Jake, but two of the contributors of the book, Reverend Elizabeth Lott and Reverend June Joplin. But first of all, we want to talk to Jake and about this incredible project. So Jake, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Oh, Mitch, it is really good to be here with you and Missy today. Thank you for the invitation. I think this is the first time we've invited somebody to be on the intro with us. I know. It's kind of our, I don't know, it's kind of exhilarating. It is kind of, <laughs> kind of fun to have a friend no, I here I love with a good us. intro and outro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe you can show us how to do one. Exactly. <laughs> Usually it's just us, you know, making fun of one another, Jake. So right. if you like so to jump we, in. We, yeah, absolutely. So Jake, we're about to have an interview. We're going to talk to the contributors of this book, of which you were one, but you were also sort of a project manager, editor for this um, book. So tell us about the project. Tell us how it came to be um, and about your involvement with it. Well, yeah, you know, the project began um, with a lot of Baptist leaders, um, naming uh, the need for us to have these narratives of pastors, of academics who have changed their mind or their practice or their church's orientation. Uh, And to capture a sense of the inner work that happens within the pastor, uh, some of the tools of exegesis or systematics that inform that, Uh, but also some of the processes that happen in living congregations uh, when a church tries to address this corporately. And so, uh, you know, these projects exist out there. And so at the outset, I was concerned that it not be yet another um, narrative of uh, a white, straight minister saying, I finally changed my mind. Could you all please line up and pat me on the back now, <laughs> right? Uh, I've, seen, I've seen those narratives out there in every denomination. You can hear that echo of a story of um, kind of the lag, but not the lead mm. in these areas. And I wanted it uh, to capture, yes, some of those stories, but also to hear stories of women, of people of color, and of like pastors who are gay or trans uh, who are a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so um, when we found that sense of traction, I knew that the project, uh, you know, had movement. And so I was really pleased when we kind of defined all of that together. Yeah. So what were the parameters that you set in place for the the authors of the essays? One, I wanted to intentionally reach out uh, to folks in, for, for lack of a better moniker, the moderate Baptist movement. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, CBF or even some of our alliance or congregationalist churches in the South generally, um, but people that had that sense of connection to that story. Uh, but also, you know, when you look at the ecosystems that feed those churches and movements, there are also other institutions uh, like religious colleges or parachurch organizations that, that form the frameworks through which people find their calling, express their calling, and land in a congregation. And so the book uh, also addresses some of these institutions in the South, like uh, a Baylor or a Samford, who have Baptist ties, and yet either silent or regressive policies. Mm. Uh, And so besides just pastoral ministry and a window into congregational life, the book also is deeply reflective of a lot of these Baptist institutions. In fact, many of the authors have a direct connection 
uh, to schools like Sanford or Baylor or BTSR or other uh, Baptist uh, institutions in the South, some of whom uh, were welcoming and affirming, uh, but others have now become uh, regressive. And so it is also uh, an artifact uh, of that as well. I want to talk about the title with you, Jake, um, and we're going to get to the main title, True Colors, but the subtitle is Stories of Baptist Inclusion. You mentioned that a moment ago. I think some people, when they see this on the bookshelf or on a webpage, are going to be taken back a little bit just by those two words alone, Baptist Inclusion, because it does seem like an oxymoronic type of title, uh, because we're not very well known for being inclusive in our Baptist tradition. Uh, and I can also kind of hear the eye rolling going on from some of our other uh, traditions in the Christian faith who have dealt with this many years ago. But it's important to be able to hear these stories and to tie that particular term, the Baptist tradition, to these inclusion stories. Can you talk about that quickly before we move on to the sure. wonderful title, True Colors. One of the deep ironies, I think, of Baptist history is that to the extent that we have systematic theology, it is one that's built on confession and liberty. And yet when we organize it and systematize it, it becomes repressive and a lag leader in social justice issues. So, uh, here you have this tradition that says at its best, the only thing that really matters between us is that Jesus is Lord of our lives and the rest should be held in this generous space of liberty of conscience before God, uh, that we create these institutions that do anything but that they don't offer that. Uh, and so, yes, you can point to a host of examples in which Baptists in the South uh, have guarded uh, the legacy of slavery, have been slow to respond on a host of civil rights issues, and of course, uh, more often than not, choose uh, a don't ask, don't tell silence, or choose outright hatred towards LGBTQ plus communities. So in order to tell the story rightly, I wanted to kind of complexify the narrative too, uh, and to juxtapose, uh, right? Uh, these different colors and hues together uh, so that the stories were reflective of different kinds of pastors and congregations and institutions. And that when read together, uh, there was a greater sense of depth and meaning to the collection because of it. Uh, and it is the approach that led to the title and not the title to the approach. Yeah, I love it. And then, of course, the main title, True Colors. I mean, as a kid of the 1980s, I could see Cindy Lauper. I could hear her voice. I mean, it was just brilliant. Why True Colors? Well, thanks be to Cindy Lauper. Saint thanks Cindy Lauper be also God. <laughs> informs. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the good work uh, of her foundation uh, that, that a lot of good people are a part of. In fact, I have a friend. Uh, that sits on their board, and I was happy to pass on that we uh, kind of as an homage were, uh, were telling this. But no, True Colors, I think it speaks, it speaks to the truth and vulnerability that one has to adopt to enter this tender space of personhood uh, as a pastor, uh, as a person, or as a community. And so it's a revealing space. I mean, you look at the space between to the essays. So mine is an essay of my own confession of cowardice as a pastor and an acceptance of something else. Uh, and you have June's essay, which is a story of her uh, letting her whole self be known in a very vulnerable way. Both reveal true colors. When churches either choose to exclude or to include, it reveals the true colors of those congregations. Um, and it is beautifully embodied, the approach and the title in uh, the cover artwork designed by Good Faith Media's in-house team, which is just it's in and of itself another artifact of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jake, we can't talk about the title of the book without talking about the first line of the book, which you wrote 
It reads, The beauty of a prism lies in the way it refracts light, revealing the colors that are hidden within it. Each facet of the prism offers a new perspective, a new way of seeing the world around us. I love that as an opening. I love the theme of setting out, looking at a new perspective and looking at, I remember a few weeks ago, I don't remember which episode it was on, but Mitch and I were talking about um, in- inclusion and talking about how we know from science that our brain is not able to process all of the colors that are out there. And theologically, what are we missing because we refuse to see all of the colors and all of the beauty that is in our world. So I love the analogy of the prism that you just have to take a moment to look and to see what it offers. So speak to speak to that and, and kind of the, the premise of the title, True Colors. There's a children's toy that's popular out there right now that's a prism. And it's one of these little reflective, like active desk toys that's good for folks that are eight or 80 do play with and get a new sense of the world, then return back to what they were doing. And in seeing that, I really started reflecting on, I mean, the nature of good exegesis is allowing light to hit a different facet of the text. It's the same kind of interpretive move that pastors do inside congregations all the time is to take a different angle or perspective and to look through a different lens in the staying class. It's just that sometimes we get a little stuck looking at the world through the staying class. And that gives a particular distorted image of the world outside. We don't often step outside and look through the glass at how people see the church. Mm-hmm. And on this issue, on the inside looking out, there is only beauty. No matter what your perspective, you can say we welcome all and mean it, even though you don't practice it. But on the outside, everything looks a little more twisted and insular. Uh, and so to step inside and outside the church and to think about those crafted windows as both a revealing prism and a distorting prism kind of formed a lot of the frame for the book for me. Excellent. So Jake, I mean, imagery metaphor is a big part of the Christian faith. And so as we think about true colors and we think about the metaphor of the Noah narrative of the rainbow hanging in the clouds and the sky and the hope that it presents. What, what does that mean for us, I guess, today? Because it seems as though metaphor has taken on a new life, has mm-hmm. been critical or, or has been criticized as a plate but I still think it is a very powerful tool for us to see hope in the world because as we have articulated in our conversations, it's a very dark existence that we face today. And we need that rainbow hanging in the sky. And the issue of inclusion is paramount to not only the Christian faith, but to the future of human existence. And I know that is large language, but I really believe but you're that. right. And that it's, it's life and death for the people that we claim to love and exclusion makes less of us as the people of God and injures those, uh, that God loves. And so I, I love that image too, of the rainbow it's certainly why we chose it for the cover um, that Gene Trotter, our graphic designer did such an amazing job embodying the frame of the book and the cover because it's as if the depth of that spectrum is revealed and was concealed and might not otherwise have been present if someone hadn't made this frame. Mm-hmm. 
but rainbows rainbows are formed by you know this kind of creative dance between the light and the water and in scripture you know water's this dangerous thing and it's the very means of destruction from the story and yet this very public symbol of god's faithfulness and providence is comprised of the very thing that destroyed the world in the telling of the story. Um, and so having that graceful power properly framed becomes a symbol of hope instead of a symbol of destruction. Mm. I think that's how a lot of people feel about the church um, for many people. And sometimes for me, the church is a place of hurt and wound and not wonder. And I think this book invites wonder at what the church might look like if we reveal all of our true colors, which means for some churches, they have to be honest that their welcome has limits and that they can't play this language game of we welcome all, but not y'all. And then just choose not to say that second part. Yeah. You know, um, it means that some churches, both, you know, those in the book, you know, we, we see these contributors who talk about their congregations who've been welcoming and affirming for 40 years. And yet their articulation of it, they have forgotten to put the rainbows in the sky and people don't know that the church can still be a place of safe Harbor and sanctuary and wonder and for a lot of churches their true colors means that i mean a, a friend said once i told him about this book someone told him when their church was talking about inclusion that he's fine if the church is purple but he's not okay if the church is yellow and some churches need to be honest about how afraid they have been to see missy as you said that whole spectrum of the light and to allow that light to teach them something that they uh, about something that they have kept in the dark or in the shadows mm. and so we wanted to lift up those narratives of pastors who have discovered the beauty of the rainbow or rediscovered the beauty of the light inside the church that illuminates uh, to tell the stories of pastors who could no longer live diminished lives and their own sense of personhood and calling evolved. And so within the book, there are coming out narratives. Uh, there is learning that God's love uh, has always extended to me too. Uh, there's intersectional stories about race uh, and place about gender and identity and personhood and all of this intersects uh, with uh, that rainbow cover uh, this is exactly what you just said that's exactly why i think this book is so important jake because this is stories primarily from clergy who have evolved <laughs> they have started in one place and have ended in another the reality that that is the story of America, whether that is racial justice or queer justice, it is okay to start in this one place and then really wrestle, grapple with your conscience and what the Bible says, what the gospel says, be even more particular what Jesus says about life and end up in a different place. This is human story and narrative that is important for people to hear. You know, um, Jesus plays the revolutionary figure for many of the people uh, as they share their story. Uh, my friend Elizabeth Lott uh, says that preaching Jesus radicalized her. I love that. Um, in terms of the narrative work across the contributors, um, when you really look at the Jesus narrative, and this is why an, another project of good faith is so important, the Jesus worldview project, 
um, when you follow the story of Jesus, like Jesus is always bumping up against the kind of mid-level institutional bureaucrats that we tend to protect as pastors, right? These are your veteran committee heads, you know? These are the people that are there on Sunday and Wednesday, and they keep the memory, but also they keep the gates. And it's the gatekeeping that can become a significant issue in the life of the church as folks are kept at a distance or kept out. Um, And so kind of breaking down those walls becomes reclaiming the Jesus story, uh, sometimes within someone's very own body, sometimes within their congregation or in their context. Mm. Uh, But it's a beautiful collection. Only about half of the authors, I think I did the math right on this, are, you know, traditional Southern Baptist, straight, cisgendered white males, right? Uh, And so we wanted within our own network of relationships to model representation and to tell intersectional stories Mm. because at the end of the day, all of this is connected. Uh, It's no, it's not lost on me that we're having this conversation right after um, the Baptist world has had this large, you know, kind of news wash about what the Southern Baptist Convention has said about women's calling. And a lot of the people who represent parts of our Baptist network um, have responded to that and with a kind of sense of, hey, we got this one right. But did we? I mean, you mm-hmm. if you step one step beyond justice for women in ministry, um, we find a lot of exclusion for others and, and really not a whole lot of inclusion for women in pastoral roles. Well, Jake, now that you have this book in your hand, you have looked at it and, and, and read through it and seen this project come to fruition. Tell us what this meant to you to, to work on this and to, to oversee. I was so proud to call the colleagues that are in this volume and to ask them to tell their story. It felt like holy work to do that, honor their narratives, but to also press them a little bit to not tell a familiar story of making the case for inclusion. I'm tired of hearing narratives like that. I want us to talk about the wounds of exclusion and to see that through a different frame. Um, you know, we, we often start these conversations in purple spaces where we talk of language of tolerance, um, and that's just not a full and whole and holy place within a church, toleration. Um, inclusion can have so many lesser levels I want us to start talking about the deep woundedness that happens when we exclude. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this volume moves in that direction um, in a variety of ways. Uh, It really does. You can trace the strands from uh, the inclusion and exclusion of LGBTQ plus persons. And you find yourself talking about patriarchy and racism and these other issues that are often kept in the wings of the church's collective consciousness because they're hard and fierce conversations to have, but they are deeply necessary. This is a really, really important point I think you just made about the term inclusion, and obviously it is in the title, but inclusion is much more than just here's a seat at the table. Mm Mm-hmm. I think white Christianity, even white liberal Christianity, has a severe problem when we use the word inclusion because it's almost a pat on the back. Hey, look at us. We have built this chair for a minority to be part of our conversation, but don't say anything. We just want you to, we just want to feel good about the fact that you got a chair at the table. Inclusion is much more than that, Jake. So 
unpack that for us. I think we're going to look back on this reductive language of welcoming and affirming. And we say it like we are really proud of ourselves when we say I'm welcoming and affirming. I think that's going to be for these kind of mostly white, mostly straight, mostly male-led congregations. Kind of like the, well, I have that one black friend. Ah. Right? I mean, you've named this, Mitch. It's a kind of, it can be a kind of tokenism or a, a pennant that we hang, but not a practice that we keep. And certainly uh, a lot less than equity in a church. We don't often talk about the unspoken rules in congregations around who holds equity and who merely rents space by their presence or their tithe. Um, it doesn't really get at uh, a true sense of place for someone. And so to, to technically tolerate or to technically welcome someone is not the same thing as the holy feast we see described there you go uh in the prophets um it it is uh, a posture well jake the book is fantastic i very much enjoyed reading it i enjoyed the variety of stories from different perspectives and backgrounds and like you mentioned the intersectionalities that that exist within individuals i just I am nosy by nature, so anytime I get into the mind of someone and get to to hear kind of how their uh, thought process is, I enjoy that, and this very much did that for me. I'm excited about the conversation we're about to have with you and June and Elizabeth about your essays. I cannot wait to introduce you guys today once again uh, to June and to Elizabeth. Uh, They have been colleagues of mine in this work in different churches and sometimes in the same church for them um, for many, many years. And so we've all known each other for a long time. And uh, I cannot wait to have this conversation today. Thank you for inviting us to talk a little more about this project. Absolutely. Stay tuned. We're going to be back with Jake Hall, Elizabeth Lott, and June Joplin. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year, I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example, even when our path forward is unclear. Find God Knows Where today in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly on this episode. We've got three very special guests with us. Nurturing Faith Publishing, an imprint of Good Faith Media, just published the book, True Colors, Stories of Baptist Inclusion. The book's editor, Reverend Jake Hall, contributors, Reverend June Joplin and Reverend Mangum Lott are with us today. Hall is an experienced Baptist pastor, nonprofit leader, and willing conspirator in Macon, Georgia, where he serves as executive director of United to end homelessness. Joplin is associate pastor of Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto and a veteran Baptist minister. She preached the sermon included in the book on June 14, 2020 at Lauren Park Baptist Church, where she served as pastor. Lot serves as pastor of St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church with 25 years in congregational church ministry and is writer, activist, and speaker. All three of you co-conspirators, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Reunion right here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. This is just a a party with an excuse to have a podcast. Or is that is the opposite? I think it's the opposite. (laughs) I don't know. We just wanted to get together with the three of you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jake. We're going to start with you. In your essay in the book, you write about the perils of purple churches. And as a lover of alliteration, (laughs) I adore the title. If you could have worked in pearls somehow, it would have just been too much for me. Well, purple churches often clutch their pearls. That's right. See, that's what I'm trying to think of. But in any case, so first of all, tell us what you mean by a purple church and then follow up with um, expanding on the idea that you talk about in your essay of ministers practicing in purple churches, not engaging in, quote, prophetic 
pastoral ministry, but something closer to hospice chaplaincy for a congregation's former relevance. Wow. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? Was. It? it was. Well, you know, this label purple church comes uh, really from our political landscape, which sees itself as a binary between conservative and liberal politics. Uh, so you have conservative politics that are red, liberal politics that are blue, and you mix them together and you have purple. And from that kind of constrained binary, you end up with churches that are unwilling to rock the boat between either side of that spectrum. Uh, purple churches like to cast their life uh, as a big tent able to take in differing political persuasions. And really, I think at the end of the day, what that looks like is a very limited set of people and conversations in that spectrum uh, because you avoid anything that disturbs the fragile peace of a purple church. Now, in terms of ministers and how they are taught by the churches to lead, Churches reward ministers in these settings who enforce the peace and don't trouble the waters. And so in purple churches, ministers, uh, by way of the expectations of their churches or what's rewarded in terms of uh, tenure, and place, and privilege, uh, is this sense of status quo mm-hmm. or uh, what, what Bowen would call equilibrium, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it is the pastor's job in those churches. Their expectations are uh, that things are kept the same and that they're not disturbed too much by difference. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I was raised in that tradition where pastoral leadership was articulated as Uh, leading just a couple of feet ahead of your congregation on a particular issue, but to not get too far ahead of them, uh, lest calamity ensue, (laughs) which is great if you're talking about their understanding of some dusty doctrine, but is really harmful if you're talking about someone's personhood. Yeah. Yes. You know, Jake, as Um, I was working through your chapter in the book, but also all the other contributors that just an excellent job, kind of that echoing of the purple church continued throughout, uh, or was a, a continuous theme throughout the book itself. We just finished uh, working through the latest biography of Martin Luther King Jr. by Jonathan Ike, who is going to be a guest on the show in a couple of weeks. And as I was reading through that, I just could not help but think about King's letter from the Birmingham jail. And it seems as though the church overall, not the three exclusive pastors that we're talking to today or the contributors to the book, but the church in general, Elizabeth, is kind of stuck in this complacency and in this fear and in this, as Jake articulated, desire to keep the peace. Wait, wait, wait. What do you think about that, Elizabeth? I'm going to edit what you said. It's the white church. Ah, there you go. (laughs) It is is the white church that believes there is some neutral space that hovers above uh, politics, where there is this place of peace, where our our opinions don't need to come in because they're just that. They're just opinions. Um, And so I believe it is white churches that have maintained that false notion of neutrality and believed that they were serving this higher good, which was the religious institution, rather than serving the needs of the people around them, particularly the needs of the people who've been wounded by this false neutrality and false purity that the purple church mythology offers. So Elizabeth, that's a great segue into my next question for you. Um, You have a fantastic quote, which we have appropriately stolen and used for some of our promotional materials, (laughs) a plug for any of those who are going to be in in Atlanta with us for CBF, stop by our booth and and pick up a sticker. But you write, uh, after nearly 25 years of serving churches, preaching Jesus radicalized me. 
Talk to us about that statement. Yeah, that's become kind of a, a, a line I'm using often these days because I certainly did plenty of preaching and some of it uh, with these fine folk. I think Jake Paul was in, in the room the, for my very first sermon ever all those years ago. And um, I certainly have preached uh, with and in front of June Joplin a number of times. Um, but it's that day in, day out working on sermons over the past decade that has really gotten me to this place of uh, intolerance for that for that very false notion of purple church that we were just discussing, because as I as I have really dug into the gospels, Jesus did not have patience for religious nonsense. Jesus didn't have any patience for people who were putting the needs of the temple and the religious system above the needs of people who were suffering. Um, I become really fascinated about why is it that Jesus would start his ministry heading out to the wild place where John the baptizer is and being part of a system that is breaking off from temple Judaism into some other expression of Judaism. Um, Why is it that Jesus' harshest words were for the people who were in the temple? Why is it that in the temple he flips the table, but when he's in somebody's home, he sets a table where all kinds of people who are unwanted in the temple now have a seat and a voice. So, uh, so yeah, preaching those stories every single week for the past decade and then living in them for all of my life, um, I realized that much of what I was trained to do was to be a temple keeper mm-hmm. and learn all of the rules of the temple and keep the temple protected and Part of that is also keeping the wrong people out and letting the right people in. Um, And if I'm more interested in pursuing Jesus in the wild places, then I've got to let the temple temple fall. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. let it let it fall down. Let it be let it be burned to the ground. Let it crumble. And then what happens in three days? I'll raise this thing up again. So it's almost like Jesus didn't care so much about bricks and mortar and buildings. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So June, we can still remember that morning back in 2020 when we watched you deliver this incredible sermon and we publish it in the book, True Colors, but you also have some commentary about it as well. On that day in June of 2020, you said this, It is easier to be truthy, which I love that phrase. It is easier to be truthy in the pulpit than it is to be truthful. What did you mean when you said that? Well, I I have to give credit to uh, Stephen Colbert for uh, coining (laughs) the the term truthy. um, We often give Stephen Colbert credit on this podcast. Saint Stephen Colbert. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Saint Stephen Colbert of South Carolina. uh, you know, he he coined that, and I guess that was back before he took over um, on on like a late night talk show when he was sort of um, lampooning conservative news commentary, um, which um, like like so much media kind of um, starts with this narrative um, that they kind of tailor stories to fit this narrative. And what Jake and Elizabeth have already said about um, maintaining the temple and keeping the peace in these big tent churches, uh, a lot of what maybe flirts with the notion of prophetic preaching isn't as truthful as it is just truthy. You know, I mean, like, I can't tell you how many conservative evangelical megachurch pastors have said, well, we don't condemn LGBTQ plus people, which is really cool until you realize that they're behind the scenes lobbying against our legal rights, which is insidious. So like, you know, you can say good things in the pulpit that are kind of truthy, but the truth is you're a very different story. There was a, a church in New Orleans many years ago, who I say many, sometime in the past 10 years, that was hiring an associate pastor. And one of the candidates came in asking a lot of questions about the church's involvement in social justice. 
So the senior pastor is at lunch with me the next week, recalling this conversation. And he said, she was just so nosy and really impolite. Don't you think those questions are impolite? I just think that it's not polite to talk about those things in church. That's cringy. (laughs) And that has really stuck with me as a counterpoint to prophetic. When we are stuck in that place of needing to be polite, and wanting to have our best manners on, then then we're not able to be prophetic because politeness is the enemy of that. Jude, I want to go back to you and attempt to delineate the difference between truth, truthiness and truthfulness. Because what I get really frustrated about in today's church culture is this attempt to simply make faith about regurgitating belief that if you are able to vocalize a certain belief system or to use the buzzwords that are popular, then somehow you are a person of faith or you are living, and I use this in quotes, truth. But when I hear you talk about truth, it's more of a living truth. It is a truth that, yes, is rooted in belief, but it is organic and comes from the inter- the internal of what God created us to be, making us fully human. Is there a? I mean, do you do you? I mean, to me, when you and I have talked about this in the past, to me, that's what I get from your theology and your preaching and your writing is this challenge for us to live into our truthfulness. Absolutely. Um, you know, in that short window between when I came out on, on June 14th, 2020, and when I was subsequently fired, um, I spent about five weeks just answering questions, uh, many of which were um, really like humiliating and traumatic. Um, and, and then I also reached out to other queer pastors to ask, well, you know, what's it like being a queer pastor of a, a church? And I, I talked to uh, an Anglican colleague of mine who is a uh, pastoring uh, um, in the suburbs of Toronto. He's gay. Uh, He came out um, at the time that he was serving the church. They didn't know he was gay when he first started working there. At some point he came out and he said, you know, at first folks felt kind of betrayed. And I asked him, well, you know, what does a work week look like? Is it like glitter and rainbows and pride parade planning? Because at the time, a lot of people were really afraid that like I was going to turn my old church into like, you know, a queer church. Um, And he said, well, no, it's none of that stuff. It's, you know, planning funerals, it's um, printing bulletins, it's committee meetings, it's finance, it's building management, it's writing sermons. Um, And he said, but there is one thing that changed after I came out, and that is the, the whole culture of our church we all kind of together embraced this deeper vulnerability that we had before. It was once the, once the dust settled, we realized, you know what, if our pastor can be this real with us and not hold this part of himself back, then, you know, what, what parts of ourselves are we being invited not to hold back? Mm. Gender and sexuality just happened to be like the top of the taboo pyramid here in the West. And so I think one of the beautiful things about being in an affirming church is that once you've, once you've broken those bars, no no other bars are as hard to break. And so um, once you've decided, you know what, I'm not going to hide this. I'm not going to curate my persona to show up on Sunday morning. Then you can bring your full self. You can bring your mental illness. You can bring your poverty. You can bring your disability. You can, you can bring, um, you know, your cultural background, um, you can bring your, your anger at God. Um, you can bring your impoliteness. Um, you can bring, um, really confrontational prophetic preaching or uh, activism because like one of the things I learned in, you know, decades of being repressed and or closeted in the church is that church more than anything is a place where you go to pretend that you're this better version of yourself, which is, well, I can't say what it is on, on, on the air probably, but um, it's the um, theology of bull. 
I, I, I will say it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly and, what and, it is. And, and more than that, it, it literally kills people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when you hear stories of how the more religious uh, a queer kid's family is, the more likely they are to take their own life. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's our fault. Yeah. We're complicit. Because we create these churches where you can't be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're not, that is statistically proven. It's not just Jews. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely. want to underline and highlight and put an exclamation point behind that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that all three of you articulate in your essays, as well as the other contributors, is this sense of cost. June, in your essay, you mentioned the kingdom of God, like truth, is beautiful, but also costly. And then you go on to state I have discovered that the only thing that costs more than buying the treasure God creates us to find is not buying it. I thought that was beautiful. Could you expand on that? Sure. Um, you know, my, my church is turning 50 this year, and um, it was started in 1973, and at the time, denomination, the Universal Fellowship Metropolitan Community Churches, was only about five years old, and it had been started in Los Angeles by the Reverend Elder Troy Perry, who was a um, a good, like, Baptist Pentecostal, Florida-Alabama line preacher who just happened to be gay and wound up in California and, and said, you know, I'm going to start something for people who are Christian and and gay. And I think like a lot of folks with any similarity to, to Reverend Elder Perry's um, biography, we, we try to suppress that part of ourselves. Uh, I've heard so many um, stories of, you know, gay, lesbian, trans folks, um, non-binary folks who just assumed that this thing that, they felt from a very young age that they would grow out of, you know, and uh, I certainly would have thought that about myself. Not only did I not really have anybody to explain the, um, what my identity was about, but uh, I just assumed it was something, you know, by the time I grow up, it's not going to be something I think about very much. Um, But ultimately the, the stress of carrying around that, that, burden and the burden isn't the identity the burden is the hiddenness and the stress of that just becomes too much it becomes too much and um i know a lot of folks here in my congregation and just in the queer community here in toronto and elsewhere who came out later in life um and and their stories are remarkably similar um it, it, it creates this pain, it creates this trauma, it creates this depression, and it, it's not that coming out in midlife is an easy thing to do. Um, by lots of measures, my life is a lot harder now. My career is uh, a lot more limited now. Uh, my opportunities for like partnership and financial stability, you know, are, are out the window um, compared to the way my life was before. But I feel a lot of peace with who I am that is worth it. Uh, and, and I do kind of hate to use the language of worth it. <laughs> um, but because in part, I, I don't like to suggest that like, that it's okay that I had to lose those things. It's totally not okay. It it shouldn't, nobody should have to go through what I went through to, to transition. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, um, having gone through it, um, do I accept that to get to be this version of myself? Well, yeah. Um, there's this great book called, uh, beyond a binary God, uh, theology for trans allies. And Tara Sowers is her name. She's okay. a um, an Episcopal church, uh, Episcopal minister in New England and the parent of a trans kid. And in the intro to her book, she writes about how for too many trans Christians, um, living into our full identity becomes the pearl of great price. And when I read those words like years before, uh, I, I June 14th, 2020, I probably read them in 2018. 
I said, oh, I know what my coming out sermon is going to be about. Mm. Um, and so I think that's such a beautiful, um, well, I mean, it's a beautiful image, but it's also as inspiring as people have told me that sermon is. It's a sermon about how it really sucks having to lose everything to be yourself. Yeah. And I don't make any apology for that because it really sucks having to lose a lot of stuff to become yourself. And nobody should have to spend that much on that pearl. Um, but sometimes that's just the way life is. Mm, well I love said. the line that you give in the book, June, that says, I believe in a God that knows your name, even if that name hasn't been chosen yet. Yeah. That was, so that was such a beautiful statement. I have friends that right now haven't shared their new name with the world. And, 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 uh, one of them just happens to be a published author and has um, self-acceptance was kind of um, synced up with the release of their second book after the first one was really popular. And so their publicist is like, well, maybe you could come out later in the year until the book launch. And so um, they, they have really graciously said, yeah, okay. Uh, which, um, but I was, I was at a, I was at brunch with them a couple of weeks ago and they said, well, actually my name is, and we were all very excited to, to, to hear that. And there are so many people like that. I've, I've met folks who um, like would have been presenting more masculine and have come up to me and, and you'd think, oh, this is somebody named Jake or Cliff or, or Mitch. And they say, well, my name's Melissa and I haven't told anybody that yet, but I want you to know. And, um, that's a really special thing because names are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So powerful. Well, Elizabeth, you get the final word in the book. So we're going to offer you the final question. <laughs> you remind us that all of these ethical questions we face at their foundation are about loving God, loving each other and loving ourselves. They're about being the true and fully human human being God created you to be. How can that message take hold in today's world and how can we communicate it better? Well, we have to embody it, which means we have to believe it and buy into it. So I can only, I can only tell my kids so many times, right. You know, that they matter in, in all kinds of ways. If I'm not, if I'm not modeling for them that I believe that about myself, then they're only going to believe my words to a certain extent. Um, Sometimes I think the world is doing a better job mm. of loving neighbors and loving ourselves. And maybe not everybody would call it God, but pursuing some kind of sense of something that is greater than, or that is the oneness that connects us all. Um, it, it does break my heart that I feel like it's often religious places, often the church, um, where we're not practicing that kind of radical love. It seems so logical and so simple. Um, and it breaks my heart to think that for us, for, for many of us to feel like we can fully embody that threefold path of love would mean that we have to walk away from religious institutions because uh, they're too small. Their imaginations are too small. They're too afraid. And the, and not curious enough. I think it was your essay that you mentioned, you equated um, partial inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in your church is as if you're telling them they're three fifths of a person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, I, I just, I got chills now just saying, I was like, Oh, the equivalency in that was just so obvious, but you're thinking, oh my gosh, because we look back at that in, as a time of our history and think, oh, how could we ever say someone is three-fifths of a person? And you're like, well, you know what? The church continues to do it today. So um, that was just a really powerful, powerful um, analogy. Yeah, I think that it's been really helpful for me in when, when I'm being too uh, afraid or hedging my words. Is that a thing? Is that a line? Hedging my words? Sure. sure. It is now. You've coined it and yeah. we're going to put it on a sticker. If, I, if, I, you know, <laughs> if I'm being too cautious about my words and not wanting to make someone uncomfortable when it, when it has come to LGBTQIA plus conversation, yeah. to put it in that civil rights category that especially people in the American South use often, of course we 
we wouldn't make these statements about people of color, right? Hopefully we right. wouldn't right. in 2023. Um, and so I think to frame it that way of like, if you had a black family join your church and you say, I'd love to dedicate your baby, but you need to sit in the pew and I'm going to present this baby as though it's parentless. Right. And is now just the baby of the congregation. Um, how offensive. Mm. <laughs> we don't realize sometimes we're still living in absurdity and it's yeah. Yeah. what in 50 years will we look back on and see as our own absurdity. And something else that I've noted that you said um is the safety of tradition and the risk of radical welcome are usually at odds and I have to choose. I am still actively discerning and choosing. And I love that because you it is still an active daily process that we have to check ourselves. We have to check on what we're doing, what we're thinking, where are those areas that, that we are still um, allowing absurdity. Absolutely. And I, I think that, I have often justified my position in the church by saying, well, I'm not like those. Yeah. And right. <laughs> like, if you're, if you're adjacent to the Klan rally, you're just not in the Klan rally, but you're sitting <laughs> on the bench watching the Klan rally. I mean, weren't you there yeah. also? And, and maybe that's hyperbolic, but sheesh. Um, I, I think Many of us white pastors have been complicit in a whole lot of harm that has been caused. And I hope that I have reached a place or am striving toward reaching a place where um, I choose to do less harm with with my words, with my actions, um, and that I am more concerned with communicating that love that we were talking about than I am with keeping my job. Yeah. that I'm more concerned with being someone who is known for radical acceptance and welcome than I am for being really hireable. Mm, I love that. I, I think that, I think that there's a little red flag next to me now. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure that I'm now, you know, yeah. one of those people we can't quite trust what she's going to say because she might speak truthfully and not just be truthy. Right. So as you all know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell? We will start with you, June. Well, I guess my more to tell, um, you know, when you finish listening to this podcast today and you've liked and subscribed and, and you know, um, search up um, and also some women, uh, Broadview Magazine's first ever podcast up here, um, Broadview Magazine. It's kind of like the Canadian Christian century, or maybe I should say that the Christian century is kind of like the American Broadview because Broadview magazine is North America's oldest continuously published magazine. And it's um, has a long time affiliation with the United Church of Canada. And they got into podcasting and asked me to be the host of a, a, this podcast called, and also some women we've looked at uh, Eve Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, uh, characters like uh, Ruth and, oh no, we didn't do Ruth. We might do Ruth in season two, if there's season two. We did Deborah and JL and Jezebel and Delilah. And it was a lot of fun. I'm really proud of it because um, it's the first thing since my coming out sermon that anybody's asked me to do that has nothing to do with pride or gender identity or, and so it's, it's my, it's proof positive that I haven't been completely pigeonholed as like the queer pastor. They were just like, Hey, you know a lot about the Bible and you're a good communicator. We're doing, and you're a woman and we're doing this thing on um, uh, women in the Bible. We think you'd make a great podcast host. And I said, yes, I would. And I'd be happy to do it. That's um, awesome. So uh, it's, it's uh, we, we did five episodes and uh, hopefully people like it enough that we can come back for a second season, but, uh, and also some women very proud of how it came out. Excellent. Excellent. I want to push that to you. Yeah. To right. yeah absolutely. Also some women. So after you're done with this podcast, you can go like and subscribe to that one as well. Now, Elizabeth, what about you? What is your more to tell? Well, I guess we're plugging podcasts. So I'll go, yeah, go right ahead. Um, I just wrapped up season one of my podcast, Beyond Religion, and it's conversations about uncontained spirituality. And what has been really surprising about it 
conversations like with my colleague, Jake Hall, his full story, two hours and 22 minutes uh, is available on Beyond Religion. Um, I, I started to realize you can't get to that place of uncontained spirituality without talking about harm and trauma that are catalysts for going searching for something more. And those conversations have been really significant for me. And that means the past 14 weeks of my life, I've just been talking with talking with friends, talking with colleagues and really being transformed by those conversations. So excellent. Glad to share that with the world. I'm really proud of what we've done together. Wonderful. Beyond religion. Yeah. Okay. So that's the next one after that. All right, yeah. Jake Hall, what is your more to tell or your podcast to plug? <laughs> I think my more important more to tell would be a, a report from the front in the wilderness. Like 18 months ago, I left pastoral ministry and walked from the altar down the aisle with my children out of the church into the world. And I wondered on the way out the door what our spirituality would look like. And I think what I have found here in the wilderness is uh, no less sacred a ministry and no less needful a parish. In fact, one that might be more vital and visceral both than what I had experienced. And so for those that are stuck in institutional churches and you're finding that there is less of you there year after year, and you're worried if it's going to consume you, you really can find more of yourself out there in the world mm. and in the wild than you ever thought before. And so an invitation into wilderness, I think, is my something more. Um, an example of that is something that started back when I was a pastor, but bridges that space between church and wild really well. Uh, I will plug my podcast, except it's not a podcast. Can I still plug it if it's not a sure, podcast? Sure, we'll <laughs> yeah. allow it. Yeah, It's an FM radio show. Oh, if it's an FM radio show, then Do we no. have to explain to people under 20 how to use a radio? <laughs> <laughs> so you can get it on Mixcloud or listen. Uh, Is it a talkie? A <laughs> yeah, you can listen on a live stream uh, on on Sunday mornings. On uh, 100.9 The Creek, it mixes Americana music. It treats it as liturgy, as the hymn book, the canon of music. Uh, and what I found there is that there is a moral arc to this genre of genres uh, that takes redemption seriously, takes confession seriously, takes sin very seriously. Uh, and I have really enjoyed plumbing those spaces for a depth of meaning now for nearly seven years. Uh, so it's been wow. my weekly to bi-weekly religious experience. I started basically doing it live during COVID, which is what Elizabeth was talking about. Uh, so occasionally I will text one of my minister friends who are in the right time zone to uh, play around uh, and ask uh, what song might embody their lectionary passage or even offer up a little shout out on occasion. Uh, so that's another life-giving space. Excellent. Excellent. Check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Jake, June, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us this week on Good Faith Weekly. The book is True Colors, Stories of Baptist Inclusion. The three of you were terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to see y'all. Always great to be with y'all. Hey, Mitch, guess what? What? The book... We've the, just been talking about yes, true colors, stories of Baptist inclusion is available today. It Today's is. the day. Today it's is available day. for order, or for those of you who might be in Atlanta next week for the annual gathering of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, come by our booth, pick up a copy and some fun swag. And get your hands on it before anybody else. Absolutely. We'd love to see you and to get this book into your hands. is just, it really is well done. And the conversation we just had with three of the contributors, there's so many others who participated in this book and it's just really, really well done. And we need to thank the Baugh Foundation oh, for their yes. support for this project. Um, it was just so valuable. 
Jackie and Julie and the entire Ball family just are very supportive of Good Faith Media and are advocates and allies for our LGBTQI community. And we're so thankful that they came to us with this idea and we immediately said yes. So I have one final sort of comment to make. Okay. We kind of just one. Well, (laughs) one you're going to vocalize on air. Uh, You look at this project and like, I think you alluded to in the interview that, you know, what's the reason for this little book specifically about Baptist inclusion? Because at the end of the day, the world is much bigger, believe it or not, than our Baptist ecosystem (gasps) that we've grown up in. Um, But yet I just, as I was thinking about after the interview and, and, and beyond is this is so vitally important because as Jake and Elizabeth and June alluded to, this is a matter of life and death mm-hmm. and the, the rates of self-harm and, and suicide are so much higher for kids who did grow up in the church and feel rejected. And if this book makes it in the hands of someone who is struggling with that, who says, Hey, there are people in my camp and from my background who support me, who love me, who affirm me. And for those pastors who are still continuing to have to get up every Sunday and preach these sermons and deal with maybe a conflict of where they are personally versus where their church is. Mm -hmm. I hope the book provides encouragement. I hope it provides courage and and peace for, for everyone who reads it. Very well said. I couldn't say it better myself. Right. So for those of you in Atlanta next week, we will see you there. See you in Atlanta. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>